It is not going to plan, is it? No, Kiev hasn't fallen. There's fighting taking place and the Russians are taking casualties. Whether it's as many as the four and a half thousand killed, as claimed by the Ukrainians, we'll find out all in good time. What is for certain is there is real, genuine Ukrainian resistance. It's quite noticeable that the people crossing the border into Poland, about half a million of them, are predominantly women and children. The men have stayed to fight. They're being led, I think very bravely, by President Zelensky, who's been there in the centre of Kiev. He hasn't run away. And one of the things that strikes me is perhaps one of the reasons that the army is not being as successful as Putin wanted, is that Russian soldiers are rather reluctant to kill their own Slavic cousins. And the tanks and the kit are clearly very old, quite easily taken out by some of the equipment, much of which I think we actually provided them. They've been running out of fuel, so there are logistical problems as well. And despite the United States of America being completely absent, and I say this because President Biden spent the weekend back at home in Delaware. If ever there was a time for an American leader to be in Europe, sitting around with the other NATO leaders, it was this weekend. And in terms of sanctions and everything else, the US, well, just following really the lead that comes from elsewhere. And yet, it does appear that the world really is beginning to unite. Even Germany, yes, even Germany, are now actually going to help Ukraine. And I thought it was very significant today that Swiss banks are putting a freeze on Russian assets, on certain name people's Russian assets. The Swiss banks, of course, always, always completely independent in these matters. My feeling is this. Oligarchs, but also many other wealthy Russians, they've had a great 25 years, able to make their money in Russia, able to get their money out of Russia, able to buy their houses in Chelsea, to send their kids to some of the best private schools in the world, to get their medicine from Harley Street, their super yachts in Monaco, Capri and elsewhere. They've had a fantastic life, but they're beginning to get a bit upset. Now, Lord Lebedev, of course, is a dual national. Lord Lebedev, who owns the Evening Standard, has come out today very clearly saying, President Putin, please stop this war. And my feeling is there'll be many others, many, many others, who are worried about their lifestyles, worried about Russia effectively becoming like North Korea, cut off from the rest of the world. And that will leave Putin only one place to go, and that's Beijing. I don't see the oligarchs particularly wanting to move to Beijing. Putin has completely overreached. He has miscalculated. We saw over the weekend growing street protests, and I begin to wonder whether there might be people, indeed, in the Russian army who decide this war against their own cousins is just not for them. But, and here's the worry, if I'm right about all of this, then Putin, facing defeat, could be at his very most dangerous. And that is a truly sobering thought. Do you agree with me when I say, and I don't know when, but when I say Vladimir Putin is finished? Let me know what you think. Please, Farage at GBNews.UK.
Now, joining me is Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. This escalation, Darren, to talk of perhaps nuclear weapons being used, and it was indeed the Russians that said they were going on to, you know, full alert, mm -hmm. I mean, as if the West was going to launch a preemptive nuclear strike. I mean, it was nonsense. But Liz Truss is now being blamed by the Russians uh, for all of this. Yeah. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, the Kremlin essentially pointed the finger at her today for the reason that Vladimir Putin uh, went down that road. Thankfully, the United States and others have said they've not seen anything strategic in terms of change in the last 24, 48 hours that would suggest that <clears throat> Russia's actually serious in, in all of this. But you are right, uh, and we, we have briefings from security officials here in London, but it has been a message that has been reiterated in Paris, Berlin and Washington. The fear is... Uh, that as this war drags on, mm -hmm. as the pressure in the Kremlin mounts on President Putin, uh, and, frankly, as there doesn't seem to be an obvious way out, that Putin may well get more aggressive, and that will be at the cost of the Ukrainian people. Um, we have seen an increase, I think, in shelling today in the second city. Uh, we know that there's been several large explosions tonight in Kyiv as well. Uh, and that will... And suggestions, suggestions of cluster bombs being used. Indeed. Um, and which the Russians, must be said, have used in the past, but only in places like Syria. And it's fascinating, isn't it, when you look at these images coming out of Ukraine, some of them very difficult to verify, some of them mm. not so. Mm. And you've got ordinary Ukrainians telling Russian soldiers to go home. They're not wanted in their own language, using their own swear words. Mm. And I think also, and one of the things, and I've read an awful lot about this conflict in the last couple of days, that really has stood out more than anything else, and it's about morale amongst Russian troops. Many of these troops, yeah. essentially, while not actually conscripted, but they join up because they're offered a free house, they've never really, many of them, been in battle because Russia's not been involved in a proper war for a very long period of time. Syria is completely different from this. But that they have got incinerators on the battlefield to ensure that these bodies do not go home, mm. that their ashes are spread in Ukraine. And that is because back in 2008, uh, during the Georgian incursion or the invasion, Putin learned a lesson about Russian mothers taking to the streets about their dead kids. And that is a concern clearly weighing heavily mm. on the Kremlin. Yeah, no, I mean, there are a, a whole host of factors. And I mean, I talked about wealthy Russians and the great lives they're leading being under threat. Interesting, though, in terms of, I, I mentioned in my introductory talk, um, the complete lack of NATO leadership from the Americans, but actually everybody else uh, getting involved, even the European Union, <laughs> firstly finding unity, and Germany performing the most astonishing U-turn. There, there are two things that happened yesterday, which alone would be massive news stories, but get slightly swamped by everything that's happening. First of all, you're right, a massive paradigm shift by Germany in terms of its defence and foreign policy. For understandable reasons, Germany's never really built up its defence forces, uh, really not invested in them at all. In fact, there were videos of German troops exercising not very long ago with broomsticks because they didn't have enough actual guns. President Trump, as you will well know, went around telling Germany it needs to do the 2% target. In yep, GDP. he said he did. Well, Olaf Scholz from the SDP, nonetheless, who's the new chancellor there, uh, announced in the Bundestag yesterday that they are going to do that. They're going to pump 100 billion euros into the German army. I think at one stage, if this goes through, it would, they would then be the third largest defence vendors in the world. Very, Strong. very significant. Extraordinary the Germans are doing this. And they have, and this has all come about because they feel really angry that essentially Moscow has been lying through their teeth. That's the words that they were using over the last couple of weeks. And they realise that actually European security now involves a, a German element, which has not been the case 
for a very long period of time. No, and second of all, entirely right about the European Union. We've laughed about the prospect of an EU army. It's always seemed quite laughable. I think it still does, Nigel, to a large degree. But you know what? To be fair to the EU, they do often unite in a crisis. And it's extraordinary that the European Commission is now using its own money to buy weapons on behalf of its member states and mm. send those... And without debate. Weapons. Without debate, with entire unity. And, and to be like, the well. European Union trying to agree on anything, particularly when it comes to foreign mm. affairs, has always been tricky. Again, that was a very, very significant move. Darren, thank you. And the European Union, of course, which has always wanted to extend now the Ukraine signing a document saying they want to join. I won't dwell on that today. I will another time. Now, let's see Liz Truss, the much-mentioned Liz Truss, speaking in the House of Commons earlier on this afternoon. Everyone is clear Putin must lose, and we will carry on increasing the pressure until he does. We have all seen Ukraine's determination to fight. Putin's war could end up lasting for months and years. So I say to our Ukrainian friends, we are with you. In Britain and around the world, we are prepared to suffer economic sacrifices to support you. However long it takes, we will not rest until Ukraine's sovereignty is restored. I commend this statement to the House. That was Liz Truss earlier, and of course it's true. We put sanctions on Russia, and in many ways those sanctions will come back in some cases, and cost us. Well, let's begin by talking about the military situation. We'll move on to refugees. And I'm joined by a former Grenadier Guards officer, a man who's seen action. He's Adam Holloway, Conservative Member of Parliament for Gravesham, who serves on the Home Affairs Select Committee. And previously, of course, uh, you were on the Defence Committee. Adam, good evening. Nigel, I can hardly hear you. Can the studio please whack up the volume? Right. OK. We're whacking it up as high as we can. Can you hear me, Adam? OK, Nigel, let me, let me, let me, just, let me just start then, because I can't hear your questions. But right. can I please tell you about my day today? I woke up right on the Ukrainian border in southeast Poland, and I went to McDonald's. And the McDonald's near the border was packed with women and children and a few elderly people. We then went up the road a couple of miles and I crossed over into Ukraine. And then really quite extraordinary scenes of uh, thousands of women and children queuing at the border. Um, men separated, uh, foreign men separated. Some of them have been literally living in these sort of uh, corralled areas. Uh, in the in the border post for four days and nights in the cold, and we then drove on east towards the town that I'm in now, which is about 80 miles uh, beyond the border, and I saw the mother of all traffic jams. Uh, I mean, it went on for about 20 miles. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of cars. Um, um, the military situation. Can the Ukrainians hold the Russians, or is there a danger this escalates to very, very Can dangerous the weapons indeed? So, so it's, it's very interesting. I mean, for the, for the few hours I've been in this city, um, I've, been, I've been going around, and I've just, uh, a, a couple of hours ago, went to a place where volunteers, you know, ordinary people in a children's nursery, were busy packing up medical supplies that have been donated for, uh, by the public um, literally putting together medical packs 
for individual soldiers. And then we went, um, we went around the corner and there was a place where people volunteer to sign up for the, for the, for the military. Um, and we ran into Ukraine's top uh, concert pianist, um, Igor Grubin. Uh, and it was fascinating talking to him because so many people are volunteering for the military that they're only taking people with actual military experience. There just aren't enough guns. So I heard a little bit of what came before in your program, uh, talking about Russian conscripts. And you've got the reverse situation here. I mean, I've only been on the ground for just over 12 hours, but it seems to me that these people here are absolutely determined to fight. And, you know, if you look at the sort of the moral component of warfare, and as you know, I used to be a soldier, um, that is the that that is the decisive thing, and you know I ca we can't know what's going to happen over the the next few days and months. But one thing I can absolutely tell you and your audience is that these people here, certainly where I am right now, and I think right across Ukraine, it does feel to me as if they're going to fight. Adam, fantastic report. Thank you so so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam Holloway. Well, wow. well, that was a pretty amazing piece of reporting. And Adam Holloway, not your ordinary member of parliament. Adam Holloway, he was a, a five years an officer in the Grenadier Guards. But most extraordinarily, before he joined the army, during his gap year, he went to Afghanistan and fought with the Afghan resistance against the Russians when they were trying uh, to take over and hold Afghanistan. So Adam Holloway, a man who's used to the front lines. And wasn't that interesting from somebody, and you know, he served in the, in, the, in, the, in the first Gulf War. He's somebody who's seen combat and seen action, and there himself describing, you know, Ukrainian men volunteering to go and fight for their country against Russian conscripts, many of whom, I suspect, just don't want to be there. So I have to say, I find some of what's going on in the Ukraine and the way Ukrainian men are responding to this really pretty inspiring. There are half a million people who fled mostly to Poland uh, and these people are genuinely displaced. They are genuine refugees. They are predominantly women and children, which is a pretty marked contrast to the people who come across the English Channel, who, of course, are predominantly young men who've left the women and children behind. In a moment, I'm going to talk to Russia guest Samantha Debendern. Let's find out a bit more about Vladimir Putin, his network of support in the Kremlin, and whether she thinks that support can hold. So it's not going well. We had that amazing report just there uh, from the borders of Ukraine. a little bit of the support network of Vladimir Putin. But before we do that, let's get some of your reaction. 
Is Putin finished? Am I wrong about this? Michael says, oh, my goodness, yes. I think he flipped his lid. I hope the Russian people feel safe enough to come out onto the streets and the generals withdraw their support. Stuart says, Putin lost this war as soon as he crossed the border. The only hope for Russia is if the people, the military and the government topple Putin and put him in prison. The only problem with toppling someone who's been there for 22 years is, I mean, hard to imagine what the chaos might be next, but that's not a reason for not doing it. Mark says he is if his people turn on him. Rahn says Putin might be finished. It depends if his generals and the oligarchs are prepared to manoeuvre against him. I sense the oligarchs are beginning to do that already. Jack says, my view is that I think Putin is at the end of the road. But who's there to replace him? Well, I don't know the answer to that. There's nobody obvious. Uh, and of course, you know, the man has been there for 22 years. But I wonder, perhaps he's been stuck in an ivory tower for 22 years. Perhaps he's lost touch with the world. This dream that he seemed to have, that as the Russian tanks went into Kiev and elsewhere, they'd be garlanded with flowers. Well, clearly, he's got that very, very wrong. Let's analyse Putin's regime, those around him, what strengths he has. Joining me is Samantha Debendern, Associate Fellow of the Russia Eurasia Programme at Chatham House. Good evening and welcome. Good evening. It, it, it's something of a mystery to all of us. Um, you know, what is, what is the support network that is directly around Vladimir Putin? Well, there are different levels of support network. You have the immediate, what we would call the, the power ministries and the people who run these power ministries. Those would be the, the foreign, the, the defense ministry, the border guards, the foreign intelligence services. You have a second circle of oligarchs who are supporting him and financially. But I think what Putin was counting on most of all was that the West would continue to be as greedy as it has been for the past eight years, ever since Russia annexed Crimea, ever since it allowed Russia to interfere in its electoral systems and divide us. And that is the thing that he was counting on most of all, I think, was our weakness, because he has played to our weakness and he has succeeded. And finally, we are beginning to show a little bit of unity. And I hope it's not too little too late. Yeah, I mean, there is unity out there. I mean, I would I'd perhaps on the election systems, well, they might have tried to influence them. I don't think they did very much, but that's a point of view uh, that I hold. But but how I mean, he, he is. Is he a complete dictator? Is there anybody that can really hold him to account? I think that's the question that everyone is asking themselves, and particularly the intelligence services. What we have seen over the last year has been Putin becoming more and more outspoken about his designs on Ukraine when he published a document back in July last year talking about the historic unity of the Ukrainians and Russians, when he then published his so-called treaties to, um, with the West on, on restructuring European security. So far, all his inner circles seem to have been united around him. There has been a turning point, and that was exactly a week ago today, I can't believe it was a week, it seems like five years, <laughs> when he gave an address to his security council and asked every member of his security council to say what they think about the so-called independent republics in the east of Ukraine. And we had this spectacle of men, majority men, there was one woman of, of 
grown men quivering in terror as they were reciting by rote what they seemed to have been learning off by heart to say to Putin. You had the spectacle of his intelligence chief literally stumbling on his words and being reprimanded like a naughty child. I cannot imagine that these people are now united against Putin. They seem terrified. But if I were them, I would be more terrified for the, for the whole of humanity at this point, because Putin, the, the biggest fear with Putin is that if he feels that he's cornered, he might just say, well, to hell with it. I'm going down. I'm taking everyone down with me. That's absolutely, Samantha, what I was sort of hinting at. Uh, at the beginning of this programme tonight, that him in trouble, him and the modern-day equivalent of the Berlin bunker of 1945 could be at his most very, very dangerous. But what's happened to him? I mean, he used to be a master tactician politically, and yet we saw Emmanuel Macron going to meet him, and they were sitting at the end of a table. I mean, he, they almost needed a loud hailer to speak to each other. Um, has, I mean, has Putin lost his mind, in your opinion? There are a number of factors here. First of all, it does seem that he has been very isolated during COVID. Yeah. I think he has underestimated the West. He saw the way the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. And if you look at all his pronouncements on Ukraine, they started more or less at the same time as the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think he thought the US is going to center in upon itself. The European Union is divided and weakened since the United Kingdom has left. The United Kingdom is an absolute mess and has no more weight on the world stage. So this is the time when I can start flexing my muscles. I think he completely underestimated Western resolve to begin with, and I think he's shocked at that. I think he's also shocked at the strength of Ukrainian resistance and at their determination to protect their nation. He does not, when, when, when dictators become isolated, they no longer listen to their advisors either. And he is surrounded by advisors who understand how the world works. Sergei Lavrov, for all his appalling behavior and his ritual humiliation of his interlocutors, knows how the world works. And what seems to be happening now is that Putin is no longer listening to anybody. Yeah. I must what say, I would I just agree like to add. I agree with you. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan kind of sent a message that America had disappeared. But it still kind of has in a way, because as I said earlier, President Biden opting to spend the weekend back at home in Delaware did seem a very odd uh, place for him to be, uh, given that NATO could perhaps face a major, major threat. But you're right. He was wrong about the EU because they actually, in the end, they have united on this. And the UK has been very, very strong. What would be the circumstances? Is it, it, can we foresee, when we think about the fall of regimes, be it the Soviet Union, what would the, what would the cocktail be that would actually finish Putin off? Would it, in the end, be the generals refusing orders? It could be the generals refusing orders, and it could be the generals doing something a lot more dramatic than refusing orders. But the problem here is, if we get rid of Putin, then what happens? You mentioned earlier on in the program of a power vacuum, but there are other issues to take into consideration. There are no democratic institutions in Russia. There's no functioning parliament with a real opposition. There are no democratic judiciary. There's no freedom of speech. So replacing Putin with somebody else, one just has to hope that this other person would be a little bit more reasonable. When you have no democratic institutions, getting rid of the head of state is not sufficient to bring around real change. And that is what is worrying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Samantha DeBurnton, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. And we talked earlier 
about the equipment. A few years ago, I was out in the English Channel and I saw these naval vessels heading towards me. And I saw four Russian naval vessels and they sailed right past. They were literally rust buckets. Uh, and I think maybe the same is true um, of much of their military hardware. Have a look at this clip. And it's a clip of a Russian tank in the Ukraine. Let's have a look at it. Um, because it just goes to show. And there's a tractor. There's a farmer taking away a Russian tank because they've run out of fuel, which suggests logistically they're in a pretty bad place too. It really, really does. Now, one of the big consequences that will come out of all of this, and by the way, I think the world is going to be in a very different place. I think in terms of, and you've seen this massive change in Germany, they're actually going to start building back their defences. But I think it's in energy and energy provision that we will see very, very big changes. Regular viewers to this programme will know uh, that I am a persistent and consistent critic of the government's net zero plans because... I sort of think, well, why would we want to outsource production of gas and all the other things that we can do here? And a story that broke over the weekend, and it was the Telegraph that did it, said that in London and the South East, homeowners were predicted to install half a million green technologies between 2015 and 2023. Now, that's heat pumps, electric cars. But so far, only 100,000 have done so, which means... Money was put on people's bills to help subsidise the cost of this. But the electricity company, UK Power Networks, will actually still keep a huge amount of your money. And it's the same story over and over and over. The obsession to move towards wind as much as we possibly can. The idea that Boris Johnson's got that we can become the Saudi Arabia of wind. All of these things mean, in the end... We have to burn even more gas. And, folks, you'll see that in the first week of April in your electricity bill. And we have to subsidise as well. And that's going to be a big chunk of your bill as well. Not to mention, of course, the VAT that we thought was going to be removed with Brexit. We need a complete, radical rethink of this complete madness. We need to be, and the Ukrainian crisis shows it absolutely clearly, we need to be self-sufficient in energy. This country should not be importing energy. We should be exporting energy. We've got the resources, the assets and the people to do it. And if the Richmond Greens, those that influence Boris Johnson so much, don't want to hear that, well, folks, you can fight as hard as you like. Believe you me, public opinion is going to turn this one around. Some more views from you on Is Putin Finished? given the mess that he's in. And Louise says to me, I'd like to think so, but it all depends how things unravel. If Ukraine is unable to continue to defend itself and it's overrun, and what is anyone then going to do about it? Yeah, look, you're right. Of course, none of us have got a crystal ball. None of us can see where this goes. I just get a sense that that support is beginning to go away. Camilla says, Putin is an even greater threat to Russia than to the Ukraine. If he decides to use his nuclear missiles, those close to him should swiftly remove him from power. Well, I'm rather hoping, actually, that they'll remove him from power uh, uh, before he gets the chance to use any of those. Paul says, 
Putin will not accept defeat. He has become more mentally unstable. He needs to be stopped by those close to him. Well, that would be ideal. Alan says he is either finished or he has to win in Ukraine or he will go all out with nukes. Well, if, if it got to that, I mean, it would be a catastrophe, of course, for the world. Philip says, I'm with you, Nigel. This will be the beginning of the end for Putin. Well, that's very much how I feel about it. Now, in a moment, I'm going to be joined by a man who spent 36 years in the Royal Navy, rising to the rank of Rear Admiral. He's now involved in strategic and security issues. And I want to talk to him about the extent to which, since 1997, when Labour came to power, and then... Since 2010, when the Conservatives came to power, we have run down our military forces in the most extraordinary way. Is it time to have a rethink? Does the events of the last week, do they prove that living in an uncertain world means that you always have to be prepared? I certainly think so. In a moment, on Talking Pints, Rear Admiral Chris Parry. GB News Tavern is open and joining me on Talking Pints is Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Chris, welcome. Well, welcome. Welcome yeah. to this very different part of the show. Nice to see you. Now, career Navy man, 36 years in the Royal Navy. Was no it time a... off for good behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> was it a boyhood dream to be in the Navy or how did it happen? No, it wasn't. I was at uh, Oxford reading history yeah. and I realised I didn't know anything about technology and uh, I thought, well, what's the best way to get alongside technology, work in a technological sort of environment? And um, I, I'd lived in Portsmouth and the Navy seemed to be the best option. So I, I joined for five years and they kept on giving me really good reasons to stay. Uh, and, and part of that was every day of my 36 years, I got up and said, yippee, I'm going to work today. Really? Absolutely. Never got disillusioned? Uh, well, towards the end, yeah. Uh, the higher you go up these uh, hierarchies, uh, you find uh, people listen to you less and less. <laughs> <laughs> so the rear admiral that no one listens to, is that what you're well, saying? Well, no, I mean, uh, you know, Nigel, I'm in strategic forecasting and, yeah. and you know, dare I say, I get a lot of it right. And when I was doing it for uh, the Ministry of Defence. I was saying, look, this is what's going to happen in a few years' time. This is what's going to happen in 15 years' time. You're going to see the return of Russia. You're going to see the rise of China. Not interested. Um, Short-termism is, is, is prevalent in all government departments, unfortunately. It's related to the electoral cycle. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm quite interested in right now, those who don't have to worry about elections normally are quite good at strategy. Um, with the present exception, of course. Yeah, well, that's interesting. You see, that's right, isn't it? Because, I mean, clearly, the alternative to democracy is pretty unpalatable. But the problem with democracy is that, yes, it's about getting re-elected. Well, well it's Churchill, isn't it? You yeah. know, democracy's not great, but it's better than everything yeah. else. Yeah. Um, but the fact of life is... But for, to... but for strategic planning, it's bad, isn't it? Yeah, but we need to marry somehow the strategic interests of a country alongside our democratic process. Um, and I, I think we need to take some of the things out of, if you like, everyday electoral politics and say to a royal commission, um, and defence is one of them, energy, education, health, 
the really important things and say, look, give it to a Royal Commission or a Committee of the Privy Council. Tell us what it needs to be for the next 25 years. And mm. that should provide strategic guidance to our legislators. And they implement it and take it forward. But in the modern world, with all its uh, sort of integration, all its complexity, we need to have a strategic process. Then when you've got, you know, the Navy that you were in and we were, we'd been through a, a very long period of peace. I mean, the Navy really hadn't been tested in battle conditions, and suddenly the Falklands yep. war comes upon us. I mean, did we discover that the kit we had wasn't quite as good as we thought? You never go to war with the kit that you want. You have to improvise. You have to do all sorts of things. The big problem with the Falklands was, of course, we went up against an opponent we weren't expecting to fight. So we were geared against Russian capabilities, essentially high-flying missile-armed aircraft. And, of course, in the Falklands, we had to face low-flying, sea-skimming exosets, which... We thought we were going to be on our side. Um, well, they were manufactured by a so-called ally, weren't they? Well, indeed they were, yeah, yes. just, just remind the audience who that was. Well, of course, yeah, they speak French, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the fact of life is that uh, we, were, we made a mistake in the Falklands, and that was we were more afraid of exosets than we should have been. No ship in the Falklands that fired decoys was actually hit by an exoset. Um, and we failed to notice that at the time, and, and we could have stood in the breach against them. Happily, they didn't have that many missiles. Um, we managed to cut off the supply. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a tough little war. It was fought a long way away in very mm. extreme weather conditions. You learn a lot about yourself, uh, and it's good to do that. But you should never wish yourself in a war. There's no, 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 sure. But, yeah. but, it, but, but we'll come back to that point about, about what we were prepared for, and we found some indifferent. And rugby, Chris, big rugby man. Yep, um, rugby union. Yep. I love my rugby union. Yep. Love Wales. Uh, love the Welsh uh, rugby union. Um, and uh, I also support rugby league on the side as well because my, my sailors and marines used to play rugby league and they're great. And, and forces rugby pretty competitive stuff, I would think. Very competitive, particularly between the army uh, and the navy. Um, and the rule generally is the Army wins at Rugby Union, the Navy wins at Rugby League. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are, folks. You never knew that, did you? <laughs> now, you make that point. That there we were. We were ready and equipped. And by the way, with a much bigger Royal Navy and bigger services across the board uh, than we had. But we'd expected one potential bad outcome. We then had another bad outcome. And a month ago, if we'd sat here a month ago, and said, would we be in the Ukraine where we are? Uh, we both would have, wouldn't have even known what the other was talking about. So doesn't this prove the point that consistently running down defence the way that governments have, and I mean, just looking at the figures, you know, when, you know our, our, our total manpower now about half what it was in 1997, it is a mistake, isn't it? Nigel, it depends what the context is. Um, right now, I would say that the integrated review that came out last year mm -hmm. is actually geared Britain absolutely right for the political ambitions that we have in the current context. Um, we don't want to do panzer stuff. We leave that to the people that can do it best uh, and actually need it the most. That's our continental allies. And look at Germany. Germany's realised now it actually has to step up to the plate. It's going to invest... 2% of its GDP, which is significantly more taken, than us. taken a long time. Absolutely. And it's taken President Putin to convince them, which is great. But the fact of life is we are global Britain. Um, the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web is the sea. And that's the route between commodities, manufacturers and markets. And history says you dominate the sea, mm -hmm. 
you're going to actually dominate the trade of the world. It's as simple as that. China knows this, which is why it's building a big navy at the moment. But the fact of life is what we have at the moment is two blocks emerging. And, and I talked to you about this a year ago. I remember. OK, you've got the Eurasian autocracies, China, uh, Russia and Iran. And what they're seeking to do is dominate the Eurasian continent, including what they call the little promontory called Europe um, and also the waters around it. And opposing them, you've got this emerging bloc of the United States, Canada, UK, parts of Europe, more of them uh, as from yesterday, um, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, South Korea and India. And what it's going to be now is a fight for the loyalty of all those elites in countries that aren't in those two blocs. Now, we've just lost Afghanistan to the Eurasian autocrats, effectively. Ukraine could be the next one. Are we going to lose Ukraine to the Eurasian autocrats? Well, that's what we're trying to determine at the moment. But can I say that the problem is, and having been in defence policy myself, if you spend too much on defence, the public gets pretty cheesed off and frustrated. If you spend too little... Uh, then you're not credible. So what are we spending at the moment? I mean, we claim to be spending the 2%. Are we really? Well, it's... it's about, that, don't, don't we add all the ceremonial well, stuff it's about, in? It's, and, about, uh, it's about creative accounting, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. The fact of life is, you know, we, we spend about £40 billion a year uh, compared to the Americans, uh, let's work it out in pounds, £568 billion, which is why they get cheesed off with the way Europe sort of reacts. Well, I mean, wasn't Trump right about that? Wasn't Trump yeah. right to go to NATO and say, what's this new building for? Who are all these people? Why aren't people paying 2%? Why, why is America? Well, because, we, because Europe had become dependent on, on the United States, been so used to uh, the United States. The way in the past it's worked is the United States has always said, we're going to be the sheriff. And if we have a problem, um, we'll create a posse and we'll hand out the deputy badges. We call it a coalition and we go away and do it. Uh, that's the past. What the United States is subtly saying now is you people in Europe and Asia, you've got to look after your own security interests. But if it gets too big, like with North Korea and nuclears or with Russia, the cavalry will come. Mm. But only if you help yourselves. Which was very much the Trump line. And I have to say, it made quite a lot of sense. Still makes sense to the United yeah. States. But, um, but the fact of life is, Nigel, is you gear your capability to the context that you're anticipating. Is the UK geared to go and deter Russia and Ukraine? No, it isn't. Because actually, Ukraine means more to Putin than it does to, to the United Kingdom. Well, ultimately, Ukraine means more to the Ukrainians by the looks of it. Absolutely, and so it should. And isn't it fascinating to see these young men volunteering, the women and children being encouraged to go to safety? Um, uh, that was us once. Yeah, I did wonder about that. I did wonder about, you know, maybe these people have got a bit more, a bit more spirit in them than maybe we have today. I don't know. I don't know. We've not been faced with that kind of crisis, so we can't judge. Not in our generation. You know, no, no, no. I mean, we can't judge how this mm. generation would behave. Mm. I like to think we do the right thing, but... My, my impression of young people today, Nigel, is for all the stuff you hear about, OK, when, um, when it really comes push to shove, mm -hmm. they'll do it. Um, yeah, I like, to, I, I like to think that. They will. As well. You know, I really, really do. So, Chris, Putin goes in, he masses the troops around Ukraine. I wasn't in the least bit surprised with the move into the two eastern provinces. That I kind of expected that he might do that, but I didn't see the rest of it happening at all. And now, where's this going? 
Well, originally, I, I, I was telling everybody who wanted to hear that I thought the plan was to essentially fix Ukrainian forces in position, um, probably to put pressure on Kiev and Kharkiv. Um, but his agenda really is to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea. And so initially, what he wants to do, as you say, is absorb Donbass yeah. and Lukansk, create a land bridge to Crimea because it's causing all sorts of problems. That's the little separated. bit that he needs, isn't it? Yeah. And also, yeah. if that were successful, then take the rest of the country across to Odessa, which cuts, as I said, Ukraine off from the Black Sea. I still believe that's his agenda. Do you? Yes, I do. And at the moment, uh, coupled with decapitating the government as well. And to do that, he has to take Kharkiv and, uh, uh, and also Kiev. That's still, I think, the agenda, to tell you the truth. So this could, this could be a very bloody conflict. Uh, yes, it could. Um, and I think we've got to be very careful about the way we assess Russian capability. They've committed about two-thirds of their forces. Uh, what they have committed is a variable quality. Um, I haven't seen a T-91 tank yet, which is probably one of the best tanks in the world. They're all old models, T-80s, T-72s. Mm. Running out of, and running out of fuel. Uh, yeah, but that, it's a big country. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, you know, even the troops are of variable quality. Some of them are, are not very good at all. Um, but what he's doing is probing. Um, and I'm just concerned about the follow-on echelons. I don't know if you've seen the film Zulu. Of course. Uh, <laughs> best, best war film in, ever. Um, but in fact, do you remember when the Zulus first turn up, the, the British soldiers can't understand why they're just standing there and, and taking shots. Mm until the South African guy says, look, he's counting your rifles. That's mm. what Putin's doing at the moment. The Russian generals are counting their rifles. I get this sense, I could be completely wrong, Chris, but I get this sense that rich Russians are not going to put up with this. They don't want, they, they don't want Russia to be totally isolated, to be a pariah, to be a sort of almost like a sort of North Korea. You know, they enjoy their super yachts and Chelsea and all those things far, far too much. Um, I think it is quite credible to think that a lot of Russian conscripts do not want to fight their Slavic cousins. I mean, that makes a huge amount of sense uh, to me as well. If we go a week or two down here, and it's pretty much a stalemate, and they're taking big casualties, and support is beginning to melt away within the army, amongst the sort of wealthy Russians, maybe big street protests in Moscow... I mean, is this man so dangerous that he could do something with, with, with nuclear warheads? Not a chance. No? Go on. Not a chance. I mean, uh, quite apart from anything else, you know, there are lots of people in that nuclear chain. Um, and, uh, Explain. Explain. Well, I think, you know, it, it depends uh, at what level we think it is. In the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963, the one thing the Russians learned is you don't delegate control of these, uh, re the release of these uh, weapons uh, down to the tactical level. We actually had captains of submarines and ships being able to do nuclear, nuclear release on their own, their own initiative. That doesn't happen any, anymore. It's, it's way up the chain. Now, uh, in order to get nuclear release, uh, Putin himself almost would have to press the button mm. um, because there's quite a few people in the chain. And, and I don't think... But the worry is, is this man now of sound mind? Well, I think he is of sound mind because I think what's okay. going to happen is that he is probably going to uh, come to the conference table. He's going to go for peace talks and he's going to say, you know what, I'm going to hang on to what I've got now. Because that's what he wanted. He wanted southern Ukraine. He wanted Kiev. He wanted Kharkiv. And if he managed to knock out the government, uh, that's, uh, that is what the agenda was. And of course, if he's able to destroy 
Ukraine as a functioning country uh, with a non-functioning government, he's got what he wants. Would he then move on to uh, Estonia? I think it's a different prospect with the Baltic states. You've got NATO fronting up there. I mean, what we've got to bear in mind is not one square metre of NATO territory has been threatened or overflown here. Uh, and so it's a different prospect altogether. The West is now thoroughly alerted. Uh, and you've got Germany on the war path again. Uh, and you've got every other country saying, look, we've got to spend more on defence. We've actually got to... I mean, what I think has got to happen is they've got to change their attitude. Um, I, I've been in many European countries, not all... Uh, where, frankly, they've been debellicised. They don't get that mm. war happens. Mm. You and I belong to a very lucky generation. We've seen a long period of what I call strategic peace, yeah. and people haven't got used to the normal way of the world, which is actually the one that we're seeing now, and that is coercive diplomacy backed up by force. And if we think Russia's bad, there's somebody else standing behind Russia, yeah. and it's called China. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, finally... You've become a regular contributor here on GB News. How are you finding it? That's good. Um, I mean, uh, it, it, it's refreshing. It, it, it's good that people can speak their minds. I, I think the, the extent to which people are moderated is perhaps less here on GB News than you'd find elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and I think the range of opinion should be encouraged in future. Chris Parry, thank you for joining me. Cheers. On Talking Pints. It's time for Barrage the Farage. I've kept the rear admiral here in case anything very technical comes up. Let's see what we get today. One viewer asks me, do you agree we should revisit our foreign aid budget allocation to India, given their abstention on the Ukraine issue? I think that sounds pretty sensible to me. No, it doesn't. No. Sorry, go no. on, here we go. Okay. The strategist is going to come in. Go on, far away. Because remember, India is part of uh, the Democratic Maritime Alliance. Yes, but should we be giving them foreign aid? If they need it, yes, we should. But they've got weapons and they've got... And they've got weapons they'll face <laughs> China and Russia with if necessary. There we are. <laughs> Friendly disagreement. All here on GB News. William asks, did you see Trump in Orlando? And what did you talk about? Didn't get a chance for a proper face-to-face -face on this trip. Normally do. There was so much going on. His speech was uh, pretty strong. He's still got the overwhelming support of the Republican Party. But... It's fair to say, as you know, it's a fair number. Getting on for 30%, think Ron DeSantis is the man. I would say this. The Republican Party has spoilt for choice. Who on earth have the Democrats got? There's talk of Hillary Clinton even coming back. One viewer asks, would you have sacked Liv's Truss after her disastrous meeting with Lavrov? I thought it was an embarrassment, uh, but not a sackable offence quite. Another asks, Obama or Biden? How would Obama have dealt with this? What are we talking about here? For well, what? for what? Well, with the crisis we're in now, I mean, Biden's hiding in a bunker in Delaware. Well, would Obama have been different? Well, let's face it. Uh, Obama is part of the problem here. Um, he set the framework within which Putin could actually expand. Uh, he tried to reset. It didn't happen. We had that disastrous G8 conference yes. where Putin was isolated. Uh, um, and I'm afraid to say that my own experience with the Russians is they understand strength. Um, there's a famous quotation from Lenin, which both the Chinese and the Russians uh, use today. Lenin said, you should probe with bayonets. Mm. If you find mush, you continue. Yeah. If you find steel, you withdraw. Well, 
Obama and Biden? Yeah, absolutely. And interesting, isn't it? It was only under Donald Trump's presidency in recent times that the Russians didn't make any further incursions. Jim asks, what do you think of Ukraine's president saying he wants immediate EU membership? I need 10 minutes for that. I think it's all a terrible mistake. There's no point having independence and being run by those dreadful people in Brussels. (laughs) But hey, that's for another time. I am done for the day. 